Hello and welcome to the Instec London podcast. This is Matthew Grant, one of the partners at Instec London. Today we're delighted to bring you an interview with Pascal Milliet. Pascal is the CEO of the fast-growing cyber modeling company Cybercube, who in the last year have already signed out contracts with some of the major insurers and reinsurers, including Munich Re, Chubb, CNA, as well as a couple of uh, brokers such as Guy Carpenter and JLT. Pascal, welcome to London and thanks for joining the Instec London podcast. Are you a podcast listener yourself? You know, I'm not. The only podcast I listen to is the New York Times The Daily, but I suspect by the end of this interview, I'll also be subscribing to your one. Good. Well, and so Cybercube, you sort of came out of, uh, I guess, stealth mode last year. You've got a background in Symantec. Um, be helpful to hear a little bit about what it is you're, you're focusing on at Cybercube in terms of what you're offering to the marketplace. Sure. Uh, well, perhaps I'll start with a bit of context, uh, which is in 2015, it became apparent that cyber insurance was the fastest growing line of insurance to emerge in, in, in many decades, and that that growth was showing no signs of abating. So Symantec, as the world's largest cyber uh, cybersecurity company, wanted to know if there was an opportunity for Symantec to participate in that growth. And in particular, given the company operates one of the world's largest civilian intelligence networks with a lot of data, uh, the CyberCube business unit was set up in 2015 to try and make sense of that data uh, with some of the hardest problems that insurers were facing as they were seeking to insure, to underwrite, and to model uh, this very new risk. Given all the attention around cyber, although again, I want to come back to the sort of the lack maybe of large cap cyber events in the last couple of years and what that means on the market. But there was a report recently from Willis which was focusing on cyber, it had 70 companies listed in there. Interestingly, I think it missed out two of your main competitors. But as you position yourself in the market and you talk to insurance companies that are seeing a lot of activity in this space, how do you differentiate Cybercube and what you're doing in a way that you can actually get to the decision makers in those organizations? We play a very, very specific um, and quite niche role uh, that we think is really critical to the future of this entire industry. Uh, we're not an MGA. We're not a startup insurer seeking to disrupt incumbents. We're playing a very unique role within that ecosystem where our role through our software as a service analytics platform is really to enable controlled growth in incumbent insurers and reinsurers. So I think if, as you look at this landscape and you look at the investment that's going on to disrupt the insurance industry, I think no doubt there will be disruption but equally, there is a critical role to be played for companies like Cybercube that partner with incumbent insurers and reinsurers, and in our case, enable them to grow in a controlled way in one of their fastest growing, most important, and most strategic risks that they're, uh, that they're, that they're, going, that they're going after. And I think we're in a really unique position uh, to do that quite distinctively 
And one of the reasons for that is I believe any good modeling is really uh, lies on the foundation of having very good data. And so the fact that CyberCube continues to have exclusive behind the firewall data access from partners such as Symantec, that means that we're able to offer a forward-looking view of risk before trends become claims. And that's a really, really important thing for insurers to do if they're trying to model this risk and understand it. I think in the cyberspace, it's not enough just to rely on historical claims. There's lots of near-miss data, if you like, coming from the cybersecurity landscape that I think is really very, very important. One of the things that I'm always um, uh, kind of, uh, one of my pet peeve topics in this space is when people say that the big problem with cyber insurance is the lack of data. And I, I really disagree with that point because I would argue there's actually never been a line of insurance, of PNC insurance, with more data available to it. The, uh, the issue isn't a lack of data, it's just that that data is really hard to come by, really hard to cleanse, really hard to make sense of in a way that someone trying to price this risk, underwrite this risk, or manage cyber aggregation needs to do. What do you see, if it's possible to sort of narrow it down this way, but what do you see as the, either the one or the two key problems that insurers are asking you to solve? It's not an MGA, so clearly you're not you're not acting as distribution. You're not looking at their capital, but what are they hoping that you can help them solve or make better decisions on? Two of the things um, that that are really important to a cyber insurer in this market today. Uh, the first is underwriting or single risk selection. Insurers are turning to CyberCube to help them. Uh, really look at a, a more technical and data-driven risk analysis to help them choose who to offer cyber insurance to uh, and at what price. Uh, and critically, uh, to allow them to understand uh, the difference between attritional risk or cat risk loads that they might wish to, uh, to layer on top of a, uh, of a cyber insurance policy uh, that they are selling. So the first thing that we're really helping insurers with is single risk underwriting. Uh, the second is on enterprise capital management. Um, I think as insurers are selling a thousand, ten thousand, tens of thousands of these policies, uh, there, there, there is real risk of accumulation and aggregation and insurers need data-driven tools to be able to understand that aggregation and accumulation for their own internal reporting, for regulators, for rating agencies, for reinsurance transfer purposes. And so, uh, so those are, are two areas, underwriting risk and modeling catastrophic cyber aggregation uh, that, we're, that we're helping insurers with. And I would say that equally important to, to, to serve insurers on those topics uh, we've really found that insurers don't want separate tools to, uh, to try and manage this risk in the same way that perhaps for other lines of business you can treat cat risk separately from some of those more attritional losses. Uh, this is a space where you really need the same data, the same assumptions, 
the same models, and you need to make sure that that data is delivered and those analytics are delivered to that enterprise risk management individual or that underwriter in a form that they can understand, which is often not the kind of technical data and technical analysis that a cybersecurity or technology company might be feeding to an insurer because insurance industry uh, really needs you know, very different things packaged in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, I guess ultimately it's, it's like all key inputs to underwriting, you, you need to give people information where they can make a decision on it. So you can provide as much data as you someone could possibly ever get, but if they can't actually make a decision on it, then they're actually no better off or maybe even worse off than they, than they, than they, they didn't have that data. Just to come back to you, you talked earlier there about behind the firewall. Uh, can you just explain that a little bit more about what that means versus the other ways of people characterizing uh, cyber models? Sure. Um, so, so one of the more common ways to, to access data that I think uh, startups and other technology companies are, are, are starting to use uh, in this space is outside-in, publicly available data scraped from, uh, from the internet and from IP traffic, for example. And we think that's a, that's a very important component of modeling and it's certainly very helpful to be able to say something uh, from, from the outside. Saying that, uh, we also believe it's simply not enough to credibly model this space. So for an example, you need to actually get behind the firewall and see information from, uh, from the inside. So to give you some examples, given around half of claims that our clients are seeing today comes from email and email phishing, you simply can't have a perspective on email phishing attacks and trends without seeing email data, which is behind the firewall. So we're very fortunate to be an exclusive data partner of Symantec, which scans a considerable portion of the world's enterprise emails every day. Similarly, when we look at cat events and catastrophic cyber events, uh, ultimately some of the very worst events are infections at the endpoint, malware, viruses that self-replicate and spread really rapidly. Well, if you really want to understand that and model that, you need to get behind the firewall data from those endpoints that really uh, that help you discern to what extent are those endpoints uh, under attack and how do you model the spread of malware once it starts spreading. So, so, so we think that that behind the firewall data is, is, is a really crucial part to credibly modeling this risk. Uh, and we're very fortunate to now be working with um, with, with more than just Symantec as, as, uh, as a data partner to help us credibly model this uh, for insurers. And, and that behind the firewall and the sort of resolution of data you get there, is, is that important because underwriters are now looking to do individual account-based underwriting and they want to know, for example, what is the risk to BMW? Or is there something different that's happening with the data that is important but is uh, is less is less directed towards the individual account underwriting because I think one of the questions and one of the risks of anybody building a model is is the balance between you know, does somebody want does an underwriter or a company want to use it at the portfolio level versus are they going to use it for risk selection? It's clearly two very different approaches to different 
levels of capital that are going to be behind one single account risk versus our whole portfolios. I mean, so just in terms of what you're offering for CyberCube, are you are you giving people the ability to go into that individual account level, or are you more at the, the portfolio level? So we offer both, and I think some of the most distinctive analyses uh, for us end up coming at the micro segment level. Uh, because what we're able to do with our modeling is to say, okay, well, let's look at a particular industry like online retailers. Let's look at a particular geography country like Germany. Let's look at a particular revenue band. So, you know, in excess of a hundred million dollars in revenue. And then let's look at that micro segment and really understand um, from a behind-the-firewall perspective, to what extent is that a segment that adversaries are targeting? To what extent is that a segment that has really good patching um, cadences, for example? And, and I think that, that micro-segment information is just absolutely critical if you're an underwriter, trying to understand this risk and trying to understand the differences between perhaps a, another micro segment like a, 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 a West Coast United States uh, hospital system, for example. Um, so, so I think at CyberCube, we endeavor to provide information at all levels. Uh, I would say um, I would say one of the challenges is always you know, differentiating the, the signal from the noise. Uh, we have a lot of data points that are available on an outside-in, publicly scraped basis rather than at that behind this, the firewall micro-segment basis about companies. And a lot of it we, we, we do think is, is, is noise, frankly. Um, but there are also um, uh, signals that we think are, are very, very important in terms of differentiating uh, uh, single risks and single companies. For example, if you're wanting to understand the relative web security of a company, uh, it's very, uh, I wouldn't say it's very easy, but it's certainly, uh, there's a very, very direct link to the observable, um, uh, the observable um, SSL security of the web assets that they have and the, uh, and the, the security posture of the website of that particular company. I'm sorry, just for, for anybody that's not familiar with the terminology, the SSL, what does that stand for? Ah, right. So that basically is a form of secure encrypted internet traffic. How do companies that are assessing the right choice, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a choice around the functionality of the tool, there's a choice around the reputation of the business, but you know, a lot of companies these days employ smart people, sometimes they actually even build the models. How, how do you help educate your clients in what you're actually doing? And how do you find that balance between how much information you reveal and things that may be proprietary or, or just confidential because you don't want to get, get out into the competitive market? So how do you provide enough information for people to get confidence that they can understand what you're doing? And I think in particular with modeling, understand the assumptions. They don't, they don't expect it to be right, um, but, but not give away too much. Right. I actually don't see that as a major concern, giving away too much uh, in this particular space. So transparency is really important to us in terms of our inputs and outputs. And I think what we've found um, you know, 
quite contrary to, to where, where you're going a bit with that question in terms of revealing what's proprietary, the more layers that we show to our insurance clients and reinsurance clients, and the more that they see the incredible amount of work that goes into the modeling that we're doing, the incredible number of data sources that we pull from, and the sophistication of the models, the more they find that they absolutely don't want to do this themselves and realize the value of what, of what we're providing. So, so actually, uh, we take quite the contrary view of, of actually really going very, very deep into our models, as deep as our clients wish to go in terms of those inputs and outputs. Saying that, though, I think it's also really important that clients really do own their own view of risk. Because ultimately, uh, if you're a carrier that has hundreds of millions of dollars in premium going on billions of dollars in premium, tens of billions of dollars of total sum insurance, you really need to understand the tools that you're using. So some Silicon Valley companies like to talk about providing a solution and, and I really shy away from that term. I actually like to, to think about what we're providing as a tool and a set of tools, but ultimately carriers need to understand those tools, understand how to use those tools, understand the limitations of those tools, and really develop their own capability in-house to really get up to speed on what is a very, very important new risk. And so one of the first things that we do when we onboard clients is, uh, I think we've flown people out to as many as 10 different cities around the world to walk through our methodology, our data sources, our assumptions, um, so that people know what's going into the model. And it's also why we provide them the ability on the output side to go into enormous amounts of granular detail uh, particularly on our, our on our catastrophe model, so that this isn't a black box. They can look at your loss tables, uh, slice and dice different uh, cost indicators, and even look at loss at the uh, at the single company level uh, after running through uh, simulations of a model. So I think that that openness and transparency, and also at times the humility to say what a model can and can't do and what its limitations are. Are, are, is very, very important. And sometimes I find uh, something of an inverse correlation between how confidently people talk about their ability to understand and model this risk and their understanding of it. Uh, because this is very difficult, it is very fast moving, um, and it's one that, that we really you know, partner with our clients to, to understand how to make the most of the, of the tool that we've created. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. In my experience of, of working with people who are buying the tools, who, again, as I said, often can build models, have built models, one of the most important things for them is a understanding of the assumptions and awareness uh, as opposed to somebody having overconfidence, which just scares anybody and knows how to build these things. Um, one, of the, one of the sort of themes we're hearing a lot about is, is the artificial intelligence and the potential to actually move away from underwriting altogether but on the basis of your algorithms are correct. You talked earlier about you've got a lot of data in there. Do you, do you see a time, or maybe even this is where you are today, where you provide your tools, you, you've got a lot of work that's gone into building 
these in a way that helps the client. Um, so do you see that? Do you see the opportunity moving more and more to that kind of uh, detached use of tools and yeah, underwriting no longer needs an underwriter, and, and as cybercrime gets better, you know, people just push the button and the results will come out. Is that is that? So, so I, I think about uh, artificial intelligence uh, a little bit differently than many of my Silicon Valley peers. And I think there are a lot of uh, misnomers around artificial intelligence, uh, including when I hear people uh, talking about it, I, I hear people t- uh, uh, having implicit assumptions that artificial intelligence is about using really expensive computers to solve really hard problems that are simply too complicated for the smartest human beings on the planet. When the reality is actually often the opposite. Artificial intelligence exists and is being deployed today, not because we're not with very expensive computers, but because computing power is cheap and abundant. It's not best um, always deployed with the very hardest problems. It's actually uh, very well suited to very easy problems and not always the most complicated, but often problems that are too monotonous for human beings to really bother with. And in fact, some of the best art of, uh, applications of artificial intelligence aren't for you know, solving problems that the world's smartest human can't solve, but rather solving problems that a fifth grader might be able to solve uh, if you had armies of fifth graders. And, and therefore, um, you know, those are some of the best use cases for artificial intelligence. And it's, and it's curious to me that it's a, it's a term that has become really trendy recently. But if you go back to the history of Symantec, just to use one example, uh, Symantec was founded in the 1980s, which makes it something of a dinosaur in Silicon Valley amongst Fortune 500 companies. But it was actually founded within the Stanford Research Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Uh, people talk about machine learning. In 1983, Symantec was spun off from the Machine Intelligence Corporation started within Symantec. So actually, artificial intelligence is a term that's been around for a long time and one that just happens to become, have become more in vogue recently. And so, although at CyberCube, we are using artificial intelligence to solve actually some really, really interesting problems. For example, we're using AI to train our models to pair loss data and claims data on the one side to very, very large security data sets on the other and, uh, and have some, some wonderful data scientists uh, doing that, developing world-class models. But actually, a lot of the applications of AI within CyberCube end up being for very, very simple problems that actually uh, for which um, uh, computers are actually a, a better way to solve very easy problems at scale. So just to give you an example, our enterprise intelligence layer, I was about to say EIL, but that would have been my second acronym, so I uh, avoided that one, um, is used by an insurers that might have 10,000 
cyber insurance policies, maybe 30,000 or 50,000 cyber insurance policies, and they want to match the companies that they're selling cyber insurance to, to some relatively basic data, or they're trying to augment that data with uh, the, the SIC4 code of that industry. And that's actually a relatively kind of basic problem to do, even with a Google search, but one that's actually a really good application for what uh, some might call artificial intelligence, or one might also just talk about modern computing techniques. So to come back to your original question though, so what does this mean for an underwriter? What does this mean for a cat modeler? Are they going to be replaced in the future? Um, I think absolutely not. I, I think what's going to happen is a lot of the monotony of those roles uh, is going to be automated away. They're going to have better tools. And so actually being a cat modeler or being an underwriter becomes a far more interesting profession when the tools that you're using really allow you to do a lot more and engage with your brain, engage your brain in really difficult and interesting problem solving and teasing out the so what's. So that's great confidence in really listening who is both a modeler or an underwriter that certainly CyberQ won't be displacing them from their role anytime soon. And, and maybe that's also, Pascal, part of the reason that you, you certainly you know, what's been public in terms of your clients, you've been growing uh, quickly in the last, I guess, the last 12 months in terms of some of the, the, the people you've signed up. Uh, it'd be interesting just to hear a couple of stories really about you know, why, why you know, for example, a big organization like Munich Re, you know, they make decisions very carefully, often very slowly, have, have chosen to embrace CyberCube. And also, are you seeing companies going down the multi-model route or are they, are they deciding you know, quite carefully who to, who to go with in this area and then essentially being a single model uh, operator? Um, so it's probably cliche for, for someone in my position to say this, but we, we certainly think about not just selling to our clients who, who are amongst the world's largest and most sophisticated insurance and reinsurance institutions, some of whom uh, have publicly talked about us, which we're very flattered by, but we really have done, a, I think, a really great job partnering with our clients. We're really with them all the way from the, the highest levels of the organization down to, uh, to, to perhaps the, uh, the you know, more entry-level underwriters. And so that's everything from at the C-level, uh, at the, you know, the CUO, CRO level, really helping them with one of their most strategic topics putting on events like one we're actually going to be doing in London in June uh, in association with uh, work undertaken uh, for the World Economic Forum by UC Berkeley uh, to really tease out some of the, uh, the, the, the implications of cyber risk. Uh, global Heads of Cyber Insurance, we, we partnered with them uh, with a large delegation of some of the world's largest uh, cyber insurers and reinsurers at the RSA conference last week, all the way down to, to, uh, to frontline users that were putting on webinars, user events and trainings uh, for. So, so we've really been partnering with our clients if they use one model or multiple models, if they have their own internal capability uh, and their own internal models or they're building their own internal models 
to really deliver a lot of value on the platform uh, with our product, but also delivering value to them off the platform as well by partnering with those clients all the way and doing whatever we can to uh, to, 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 to really support them. Um, you know, on the multi-model issue, I, you know, I do think it's important that uh, insurers build up their own capabilities internally. Well, I mean, congratulations, Pascal, because yeah, as I said you came out of stealth last year and, and making some really, really strong headway. Um, what, just to changing tack a little bit, but just as you, as you look at what's made you successful um, and look at other companies out there that are, that are growing, what advice would you have to somebody else that's out there starting up a business and, and trying to grapple with some of these issues, both about how to engage with clients and also how to actually recruit and, and, and build the business themselves? Well, recruiting is the single most important thing that we do. And, uh, and once people arrive at CyberCube, as a leadership team, we've committed to creating an environment that attracts, retains, excites exceptional people, and allows them to do the best work of their careers, which I realize is a very lofty goal, but one that we hold ourselves accountable to. And the challenge in this space uh, for us at CyberCube is in order to solve the problems that we're trying to solve, we need people with actuarial backgrounds, cybersecurity backgrounds, software engineering backgrounds, data science, commercial insurance, we have multiple cyber economists, uh, and people just with good fundamental problem-solving skills. And that's that's really, you know, that, that, that's really, uh, you know, very, very tough to get the best and brightest in all of those domains. But I think we've done a really good job of creating a culture at CyberCube that allows those domains to work well together. Um, and so advice that I would have, um, always be recruiting. Uh, speaking of which, info at cybcube.com, C-Y-B-C-U-B-E.com. I'll see if you edit this out. Uh, at the end uh, as a promotional plug, but we are always looking for, uh, for, new, for new talent, uh, for people that have a passion for solving some of the hardest problems in insurance, and people that can work in a, in a cross-disciplinary way. Um, and I think my biggest advice is, is really to, to, to really pay an inordinate amount of attention to the, your people proposition and the culture that you're creating because ultimately, if you have a strong, high-functioning team that's going after a hard problem, uh, that's where the magic happens, and uh, that's why it's one of the most important things that we do. Great. Well, Pascal, it's been tremendous to, to catch up with you, and no, we will not edit out your uh, your uh, recruiting email address. You've been a big supporter of Interstate London, and yeah, that's the least we can do. And we'll actually even put the, put that in the notes for the show as well. So. Thank you very much. It's been great to catch up. Thank you again for your, your, your team support at Instead London. We had Ollie talking there, um, there last year and you know, you know, to see you there or certainly get more of the team there again. But uh, thank you and safe travels back home to California. Wonderful. Uh, well, look, it's been great to be a part of the uh, InsureTech community here in London. I think one of the things that makes Silicon Valley special is the ecosystem of different companies that, that exist that make other companies successful and I think one of the things that makes London really special uh, as, uh, as an insurtech hub and why we're investing in London is that ecosystem and I think Instech is becoming a core part of that ecosystem so it's an absolute 
pleasure to be a part of it. Good. Thank you very much.